Hello everyone, this is your host Manoj Tandon and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. Today we are honored to welcome back an old friend of the show and my friend, uh, Brian Stoner. Uh, Brian and I go back a long ways, uh, back to the days of computer associates, but Brian's got an illustrious history in cybersecurity. Uh, for those of you who don't remember him from the past episode, he's worked at some of the greatest cybersecurity companies out there, companies like CA, Silence, Black, well, which is now BlackBerry. And, yep. uh, uh, you know, he was FireEye. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. FireEye. You were also, I believe, mm -hmm. at McAfee for a little bit. Uh, I was. And then, uh, you know, Stellar Cyber for a little bit, now DTEX. So Brian's got a long, long resume, and, and it's a very cool one. Uh, and he keeps his ear to the ground, he's very knowledgeable. We're glad to have him. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Manoj. It's always always fun to catch up. Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I got, I guess, one place to start off with. Since we last talked, um, you've obviously changed roles, but what was the, do you see technology trends or things happening here that, that were the root cause behind this? Something exciting happening in the world of cyber? Yeah, you know, and, and actually it goes back to some of the other places that I've worked for because uh, a, a really good friend of mine, Dee Dee Dayton, who I don't know if you know her personally or not, but she's she's another big cybersecurity executive. Yeah. And, um, you know, she uh, she's the one who brought me into FireEye. She's the one who brought me into Silence. And um, so she's also the one who kind of recommended me to DTAX when they needed a channel chief. So um, I was happy to take on the role and and really help you know DTEX make it to the next level um, in in the cyber industry. That's fantastic. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know Didi personally. I, I only know her from the couple interactions we had at Silence back when she was running. I think she was global VP of channels or uh, she was. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. at, at one point in time. Uh, but that's great to hear. Uh, also, so. When you're looking at the channel, I, I guess before I ask this question, let me just kind of set the context. When I look at the cybersecurity software landscape today, mm -hmm. it reminds me of a lot of what the automotive landscape was in the early 1900s in North America. There used to be a time when we had 400 automotive manufacturers in North America. Mm -hmm. And now we're left with Ford, GM, and Chrysler, right? Yeah. Okay. So is this an industry that is overcrowded? Is it ripe for consolidation? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think you're seeing the consolidation right now, especially with the economy and the VC money starting to dry up a little bit. You're going to start to see a lot more acquisitions, um, you know, people building out platforms and adding functionality that are complementary to their core product offerings. I think you're seeing a lot of that right now. So then you come along and you take on a Herculean challenge of taking a small company like DTEX and really expanding its channel programs. How does a company like that differentiate itself? I mean, it, it seems or like a really <clears throat> crowded market space. Well, um, so I think at, at DTEX, we're really fortunate that we have founders who started the company 20 years ago, and they've been evolving the platform for many years. So okay. it's it's not a you know, two-year-old startup where 
you know, we're, we're selling our beta product and fi fixing it for our customers as we go. <laughs> right. I think we've, nobody ever does that. Yeah. Uh, we've <laughs> never been there before. Never. But, never. Um, you know, I, I, I think, I think customers and are starting to mature to the point, especially larger customers where they're building insider risk programs. Right. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the, breaches that we see in the last 10 years, right? Everybody thought that the SIM was going to help them detect it and DLP was going to stop it, <laughs> right? And and I think, uh, unfortunately, what we're finding out is that DLP has become the bike lock of, of our industry. And what I mean by that is it, it keeps the honest people honest, but if somebody's really going to steal your bike, they're going to steal your bike, right? And and over the last 10 years, every major breach that we've seen, they've all had DLP. But guess what got stolen? All their customer data, right? So I think um, DTAX is at a point where the industry is maturing to where they know now that they need something that gives them more insight into the you know happenings on their endpoints than what they're getting from the current siloed solutions. And they need to be able to look at human behavior as as a combined risk versus chasing alerts like we've been doing for the last 20 years. So get into that a little bit more. So how how and what does exactly DTEX do then? So um, it's a couple of interesting, you know, things that, that DTEX has built into their platform. Um, okay. the, the first really unique thing is that we collect our own telemetry from the endpoint. Right. And we've built a really lightweight log forwarder that takes only the security relevant data from every endpoint at the kernel level. So we're not relying on Sysmon or other agents that are doing things on the endpoint. We're really just collecting the relevant security data. Uh, and, and it's only three to five megs per day, significantly less than if you're pulling Sysmon today. Okay. And what we do is we pull that into our platform, we enrich it, we uh, use all sorts of different detection methods, obviously machine learning is part of it, but there's a whole series of rules and other things that we've built to recognize over 10,000 different behaviors, right? Okay. On the endpoint. And instead of... You so know, you're not low. So just let me stop you real quick. So you're not looking yeah. for processes. You're looking for patterns. Is that? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and all of those patterns we combine into a risk score for each individual or each device. So now instead of, you know, looking at your device and saying, Oh, uh, Manoj is trying to send a spreadsheet somewhere that has data on it. Right. Um, a truly malicious insider is going to do some level of reconnaissance, right? They're going to pull down some data from different sources at a higher volume than they normally would. They might combine it into a zip file. They might rename some things to try to obfuscate what they're doing. Um, and, and then, you know, they might send a few test files out through, you know, Dropbox, or they might send something to their Gmail that looks fairly innocuous. And then they might even, you know, start looking on the web at, you know, how do I get around my DLP solution type of thing, right? Um, 
but you know, there are other things that um, people do that are just, they didn't know they shouldn't be doing it, right? Maybe they're sending things to Dropbox and they're doing it to do their job because email won't let them send files out over a certain size and their customers need to get it, right? So there's other negligent behaviors that you can't confuse with a truly malicious insider. So we look at the combined you know, group of actions that they're doing in real time and, and build a risk score based on the user, not on the individual alerts. So, but now this is the use case of a rogue insider, right? But what, what about the case where we see the vast majority of entries for ransomware are phishing attacks? Yep, compromised and- machines, it's the same thing. Compromise, which is not a malicious insider per se. I mean, you clicked on. It's not. But when you understand the normal behaviors of that um, user. Yeah. And and it starts doing things that are outside of their normal patterns. That's anomalous. And either they've been compromised or, you know, an attackers, you know, gotten into their machine and is doing things that they don't normally do. We can detect both. Okay. Got it. So, and so as far as polymorphism goes of these malware pieces and where they're changing small incremental bits that are designed to make it different enough that it's not going to get put, picked up by a SIM or by an EDR agent or by an endpoint agent. Have you guys done testing that in those instances then you guys will in fact pick it up because it's looking for a pattern of behavior or yeah we we capture everything that happens on the endpoint every 60 seconds so if that file loads we're hashing it we're watching what it does if it tries to build outbound communication or tries to scan the network or tries to do other things um, we recognize those things right away so we have five different kind of detection areas within the risk score that we build. You know, one is those user behaviors, uh, UEBA type detections. Okay. We have um, what we call zero trust DLP. Okay. Where we're hashing every file. We hash every action every user in the organization takes against those files. Um, We can assign risk based on who created the file. If it's an engineering file, those types of things. Um, and then we track everything the user does with it, right? That, that's what's missing today is we just try to detect that event when somebody tries to take something out. We don't see everything they do leading up to that, nor do we see everything they do after that. Once uh, an attacker sends that file out encrypted so DLP doesn't see it, um, they also have to go back and clean up after themselves, those are other things that we capture that you normally don't capture with other solutions. Now, is this is Dtext then going to work in conjunction with the SIM again, where these alerts, if it's picking it up, you are going to put them into your SIM and write rules for yeah, alerts? Yeah, no, a- absolutely. And, and so one of the things that we do that's really unique is um, we can create um, different policies based on the risk score of the user. Right. So if somebody's just doing some negligent behaviors, we can send an email to that individual to say, you know what, that's not a sanctioned application. You shouldn't be sending company data through there. Stop doing that. Right. Okay. Um, but as that user gets riskier, we can start taking things away. Right. We can take away their access to certain applications. We can take away 
um, access to you know different processes. We can kick them off the network. We can take kick them off of Active Directory. So as they get riskier, right? Um, we'll we'll build a dossier basically on that user, and we can send that to HR, and HR can say, hey, to the manager, we got to go have a conversation with this guy before he starts trying to exfiltrate data because he's showing all these behaviors that are leading up to that. So we're trying to get left to boom on this one versus trying to play block, you know, the the attack type activities. So it, it'll go into the SOAR. The alert can go into the SIM, um, but the actions that we take can also be taken um, through a SOAR or okay. what we're seeing a lot of. And we have, we have, so we have a strategic relationship right now with Splunk. So okay. we, we have a Splunk app, Splunk forwarder. They can either just take in the alerts or they can take in all of our data, right? The, the other big um, partnership we have is with CrowdStrike. Okay. When all of your users went out from beyond the corporate firewall where all of your network detections reside, you lose that visibility. They're not down the hall anymore. You can't go see what they're doing. So what we do is we provide all that context if let's say CrowdStrike fires off an alert that there's some malware that's been downloaded to a browser. Okay. We can show everything the users that been doing that led up to that and everything that happened afterwards. And those are all things that CrowdStrike doesn't even capture, right? So it, it helps give that visibility back to the SOC that they lost when all the users went remote. Where do you guys fit in that world of EDR endpoint protection DLP where would you where's DTEX uh, classified yeah so um, we, we actually cover five different areas right uh, the first one would be user behavior and uh, UEBA um, okay. so so that kind of area right we also have what we call zero trust um, DLP where okay. we track everything that happens to files and can inter intercede interject ourselves wherever necessary. Um, we also have the full MITRE ATT&CK framework built into the tool. Okay. Um, and here, another interesting note, side, side note, is um, we finished a, an eight-month um, bake-off with MITRE and, uh, against all of our major competitors, and they chose to partner with us. And um, because the MITRE ATT&CK framework is primarily an external attacker framework, uh, okay. We are jointly developing an insider framework with MITRE that'll be released uh, later this year. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So we've got that. And then, um, you know, we also have a whole forensics module and a, a risk and compliance module built into the product. So um, as I mentioned before, we can provide all the context around what's happening with remote users beyond what you're EDR is telling you about, you know, uh, vulnerabilities on that, right? So um, that that's kind of where where we fit. So like I mentioned before, we can replace several different traditional um, agents that would be on an endpoint and, and give the customers some performance back on their endpoints. Um, yeah. You know, one thing that really caught my attention was you said that you can, or you have seen your clients replace Tanium out with you. Mm -hmm. So when I look at Tanium, Tanium has a lot of pieces built into it, but it's a lot about 
if I oversimplified about managing vulnerabilities on the endpoint, where it's mm-hmm. you're getting an asset inventory, you can patch remotely, you can you can find hidden assets. There's a lot of things going on there. Do you guys have that component technology pieces, or has it just become redundant? With no, your- it's it's we we rely on whatever RMM tool that the you know customer is using for deployment and all that. Um, so we don't we don't have that functionality built in, but you know, a nice way to think about it is the SOC is managing vulnerabilities. The insider risk team that's being developed right now is focused on users and enforcing policy within the company. So we typically deal with somebody outside of the traditional SOC, either HR or this insider risk group that in in a lot of cases kind of is part of that governance risk and compliance group in, in a larger company. Okay, so that's your main audience. So it's not the CISO's office in particular. A lot of no, you know, a lot of times if if there is an insider risk um, kind of pet project for the CISO, and you know, he he brings it in, and two years later it's time for the renewal, and he's gone. Um, then then it's a whole you know it's a little more difficult to sell the renewal, right? But um, you know, if it's really integrated into a program, which you know, right now we're working with Deloitte and um, PwC, who both have very, uh, kind of the way they used to have insider, uh, I'm sorry, identity and access management practices. They now have insider risk practices that focus on, you know, how do you build policy at HR to, you know, deal with individuals that are doing things that are outside of your policy, right? Um, You know, it's one thing for us to send an alert, but if they're trying to figure out, well, how do we handle this, right? Um, do we do we tell the manager? Do we sit down with the manager and the employee? What, what do we do? Right. Um, so that's what um, our bigger partners are helping our customers with. And then we're providing them the data. Right. Because you can't manage what you can't measure. We can help measure a lot of things that traditional tools don't measure because they're so focused on alerts, whereas we're focused on users. OK, that's uh, that's that's a very good uh, visual demo, if you will. And are there particular sectors, Brian, that are using your technology more than others that have been keen to adopt? I mean, you know, the, the obvious, you know, ones are, are you know, um, banking, you know, for sure, healthcare. Um, we, we do a lot with um, different governments, um, especially in Australia and the U.S. Um, we do a lot with manufacturing. Um, it, it really just depends on where there's intellectual property that people really want to protect. And, um, you know, the, the other thing is, is uh, a lot of people who build these programs don't want their um, end users to feel like they're being surveilled. You know, um, <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to feel like, you know, Big Brother is is kind of watching over their shoulders. And a lot of the, you know, competitors that we have, that do, you know, screen captures and recordings and things like that. It's very intrusive and it's very, you know, processor heavy on their devices and things like that. So um, we actually uh, spent a part of our history. um, The company was headquartered in London when GDPR was kind of coming out. And so we built a whole layer of anonymization in the product so that the SOC or HR can't be biased. We scramble the names and usernames and IP addresses for their computers. And unless you have the right credentials, you can't 
um, unscramble it and ascertain who the actual user is. So that prevents IT from, or, or the SOC from having a particular, you know, focus on certain individuals, right? It's, it's all anonymized. So when it, when the threat score reaches a certain threshold, they surface it to HR and then HR takes the actions that they've developed, um, you know, from there. So in, in that way, you know, and, and because it's lightweight, users don't even know it's there. So, you know, I, I think from a, uh, a user experience perspective, it, it really helps the customer there as well. So not only do they not feel like they're being surveilled, but their machines are, are faster and, and have less issues. So, and what is your customer profile in terms of size? You've mentioned a lot of really big companies. How small is too small for you guys? <laughs> Well, the, there is no too small. I mean, we do have some, you know, 10 man trading firms that use our software. Um, so, so it's, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, but I think um, what we're starting to see is those fortune 500s, the people that are building those practices are starting to now kind of filter down into the fortune 1000s and, and below that, depending on the amount of IP that the, the customer is trying to protect. Right. Um, so I, I think it's it's going more and more mainstream. I've talked to some service providers that want to start adding um, insider threat monitoring to their MDR service. So, you know, it's starting to filter down a little bit, but we've got some work to do um, to support, uh, you know, multi-tenant customers and things like that. We're working on federation right now. Um, but what we're noticing is that with the bigger SIs, um, you know, when they're working with a bigger customer, that customer wants to keep all their data separate, right? And so normally what we're doing is just sending alerts into their current infrastructure. So multi-tenancy is not really necessary because people are using the SIM and the SOAR as that single pane of glass anyway. Okay. So you're, so then you guys are not a strong MSSP model. You're more of a VAR channel model. Then is that is that what your go to market? Um, yeah, so we do have um, obviously a, a and, and we just did a press release on it. We have a, a new relationship with GuidePoint, which we okay. just announced, and um, we also do quite a bit with Optiv. So yeah, a lot of the the bigger VARs, but you know, like I mentioned before, we're doing a lot with the um, you know consulting firms, and um, we're starting to do more with the global SIs, um, you know, because this. This really supports a, a whole new practice for them that means, you know, another source of, of recurring dollars for them. Oh, is the technology requiring a heavy amount of consulting or configuration or? It, it, it doesn't require a heavy amount of it. Um, I think our enablement is like three days long. Um, oh, Okay. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> this is not a two week course that you got to take, right? No, I'm, I'm um, turning back the clock to our old days of CA where our <laughs> projects were like years, you know, we talk about years, how many yeah. years is it going to be? No, no, it's, it's, it's fairly simple. And then, um, you know, we, we also um, can tune all of our um, alerts and our risk scores for everything. So, you know, uh, something that happens in a, you know, nuclear facility, is going to have a different weight on different things than what happens in a bank, right? So the platform is completely customizable from that perspective, but a lot of it, you know, comes out of the box. And 
um, the machine learning takes about a week or two to start training. And then once it gets trained, it continues to train, but you can still change the weights on different things. So it'll keep the uh, data very relevant for, for the end user. And uh, you guys are 100% cloud-based or is there an on-prem appliance or something that goes in? So, yeah, our, our primary go-to-market is cloud. Um, okay. Most of our customers use the cloud, but we do have banking customers who wanted to host it on virtual images within their data center. Um, we also have customers who want us to uh, deploy on their VPC in a particular cloud, and um, we can we can support all those options. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's, that's uh, and you guys have been around for 20 years. Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, we, we've been really kind of coming into our own the last couple of years. Um, we received some some money in, in, a, in a round recently from a lot of the investors in FireEye. As a matter of fact, um, okay. four of the FireEye original board members are our board members. They, they see tremendous potential in this technology. And so um, our CEO, Bauman, was the chief product officer at FireEye. And obviously, I was at FireEye for a period of time too. So <laughs> it's kind of we're bringing the band back together, so to speak. That, that's so. Then let, let's let me ask the question: where Where do you see the investments going in cybersecurity? You've done a couple companies at this point. What What trends are you seeing out there? Yeah, so, the um, world? so I think um, the the first trend that we're seeing is. Um, the sunsetting of traditional SIMs, you know, the rules-based detections, and we're starting to see a lot more of the machine learning-based detections. And um, I think that's a function of the fact that pretty much every SIM was never designed to take in the volume of data that we're throwing at it, which is why you see uh, companies like Cribble right now um, having a lot of success because they can filter out some of that noise um, to help sure. try to reduce that amount of data going into the sim, but um, that that's another area where where we're kind of helping too because we take about a tenth of what Sysmon generates, um, so we can help reduce that at, at the sim too um, as far as endpoint data. But um, I, I think you know from there, what we're seeing is. Um, even now, now we're seeing attacks on two-factor authentication, right? Which is, which is kind of fun because that was the the thing that everybody said the last few years. If you just do one thing, two-factor authentication, right? Um, but but I think that's where now we're starting to see SASE um, start to become a lot more popular because if you can control the access and the device. Um, then it doesn't matter what kind of controls you have in your cloud and things like that because they can't get there anyway. So um, I've seen a lot of service providers start to try to try to mar migrate toward that. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other major trends that we're seeing. You know, I think for the last couple of years, um, the EDR wave has been pretty huge because once the user is outside of your office, how do you get visibility, right? right. Um, we have a, a team called our I3 team. Okay. And they monitor um, and do investigations for our customers. 
And we've seen uh, in the last year, the number of insider investigations has doubled in our customer base. And we also see an extremely high rate of moonlighting right now. Oh, but that and that's not going to stop. I mean, there was just a recent article in The Wall Street Journal about that, that this these a lot of these remote workforce changes are permanent. Um, No, in fact, it was a McKinsey article that 37 percent of the workforce, they are forecasting to be remote. And that's going and that's going to stay that way. Well, so I think the thing that we need to be able to monitor for is who are they moonlighting for? <laughs> well, right? If they're I, moonlighting you, and selling dog food on the side, not as big of a deal. But if they're working for one of your competitors and sharing information, and that's you know a whole what, Brian, there, there's um, there's a whole that that what you just said there opens up a huge can of worms, because mm-hmm. if you look at most a, a lot of a lot of the remote, not all of them, but a, a good chunk of the remote workers are independent contractors as well. Mm-hmm. And the IRS definition of an independent contractor is that you're selling your services, similar services to multiple clients, mm-hmm. right? So by definition, a lot of that workforce should be working for similar clients, <laughs> i.e. your competitors, I, yeah. right? I mean, a simple case, I, I look at healthcare. You look at an emergency room doctor. That doctor is probably moonlighting at three other emergency rooms across town. Mm-hmm. That's standard practice in a lot of places, right? And I'm sure some of those hospital systems in bigger cities are competitive hospital systems as well. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and so when you're hiring people, right, there's another challenge. You know, we, we've also seen several incidents recently where somebody will get hired. They'll stay for three days or a week, hired by a malware group. They'll deploy malware on your production systems and quit. And they basically open all the back doors, right? Um, but they they're actually creating identities on LinkedIn, getting these people hired. Oh yeah. Putting them inside the organization. I mean, this is scary stuff, right? Oh, um, uh, believe me, we're very, what you're saying is very true. And, yeah. uh, and you mentioned LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn better really get smart with this and not go the way of Twitter with bots, right? And these fake profiles and, people that are coming in. Yes, they're creating fake profiles, hiring people in. All I would say is that if you're a U.S. citizen and you're doing that to a U.S. company, your chances of wearing orange are very, very, very high. (laughs) Yeah. So think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Because, Brian, a lot of these guys that are getting hired in and gals or they, whatever the pronoun we want to use are, they uh, are not savvy technically, right? right? They're mules in a lot of cases to do yeah. A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. I, and they don't know how to, they don't know the first thing about what they're doing. And, uh, but unfortunately they do a lot of damage. They can. 
Yeah. So, you know, definitely some, some new things for people to look at, right? It's not just, oh, you know, ha have a better password and, you know, have a button so people can, you know, um, identify phishing emails. You got to talk to your HR people and really educate them too, right? It's, it's a new world out there. It's crazy. I mean, think of how many people got hired without ever actually meeting someone in person. Everybody got hired over Zoom the last two or three years. Sure. You know? I, I can believe it. And, and I don't see that trend just overnight changing. I don't think we're going to go back to that old model. At least that's my personal opinion. I, and I'm wrong about a lot of things. So, well, so now, now I think the last trend that I'll, I'll kind of leave you with is, uh, companies are trying to figure out, you know, how do we measure productivity for our workforce? How do we identify, you know, groups that aren't working together that should be working together? You know, how do we identify what our norms are in our business? So all of the data that we collect from a security perspective can also be used to trend organizations. And we have a module that we just released called Pulse that sits on top of our security product and starts to give insights into, you know, what is the culture like in your company? What are your remote workers doing all day? Type of That's thing. a very so, appropriate name. Yeah. 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 So. I, I, and I think um, the coming generations will solve this problem. And you know what the thing with cyber is, Brian, that regardless of the number of technologies that come up, we're not going to ever be able to make a company 100% safe. You just yep. can't. You know, as long as humans are designing these systems, we're flawed creatures and, uh, Imperfection never yields perfection. It's just not possible. Um, but we can make a better bike lock, I guess. We can. Yes, we can. <laughs> so, hey, I wanted to give you a couple minutes here to talk about. Do you got? Are you going to any engagements? Anything you want to go ahead and uh, highlight for us? Any talks, books, appearances? Anything going on in your world that you can? Charities you're working with? Anything you'd like our audience to know about? That's uh, yeah, you know, uh, off the top of my head, and, and I mentioned this last time I was on the show, is um, uh, I'm I'm really a big proponent of what um, Boise State is doing right now with their um, Cyberdome program. Um, if, if anybody wants to, you know, add continuing education and they're already working in a SOC and they want to do IR services or do something different, um, look at the Boise State program. Um, the, the things that they're doing there for continuing education, um, for people who are just getting into the business, uh, maybe they work at an MSP and they want to work in a SOC. Um, you know, Boise State built a whole SOC um, that supports um, local municipalities and schools and, and people that really can't afford cybersecurity. And, um, you know, the students get that experience uh, protecting some of the most vulnerable organizations in the state free of charge. It's all uh, supported by grants that the state provided to the university. So the, the program that they built out there, I, I highly recommend every time I get a chance. Can, can you uh, send us a link to that and we'll include it in the show notes? Yeah, and you can just look up Boise State Cyberdome uh, program, and and uh, you'll you'll find it in Google too. Now, did you have a hand in developing that curriculum at all? Well, I didn't have a hand in developing the curriculum, but while I was at Stellar Cyber, um, Ed, who runs the program, 
um, at Vasco, super nice guy. Um, you know, we, we were, I, I actually met him at a, um, C, CGI event. Um, Pelham Rowe runs those okay. events anyway. Um, you know, and, and this was during COVID and I just reached out and I said, Ed, you know, uh, I know we can't meet in person, but I'd like to just spend 15 minutes with you to get to know about what you're doing, you know, at Boise state. And it wound up, you know, where we provided the stellar cyber software to them, um, because they weren't charging, you know, the end users, we didn't charge them for it. So we just built a, a mutual relationship. And now, uh, that they have graduates coming out of that program, um, the, the managed services providers for stellar cyber get the benefit of newly minted candidates that are fully up to speed on the platform. So it's, it's been wildly successful and, um, you know, I'm super glad that, you know, I, I made the time to network with Ed and, and that all this came out of it. That's fantastic. And, uh, that's good work. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're shorthanded on people in this, uh, sector. Uh, so providing well, a means so by which people can get an education is a, is a big deal. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you've got kids that are high school age, let them know about this career, right? Um, when, when my son went into high school, all they told them was, well, you could be a programmer or, you know, a video game designer. And I'm like, there's cybersecurity out there, guys. You know, we, and I think, you know, if we're not recruiting kids at that younger age, then we're missing a huge opportunity, right? Um, because the world only needs so many game designers. I'm here to tell you, <laughs> but we need way more cybersecurity people, right? So if we could get kids interested in earlier on, we have some of the best pay packages in the world in the cybersecurity business. And these kids, uh, you know, never find out about it. So, um, you know, my thing would be talk to your counselors, talk to your, you know, computer science teachers and say, Hey, have you ever thought about, you know, I'll, I'll come in and talk about cybersecurity for an hour. Just give the kids an idea of what's out there, you know, and who knows, you know, maybe we'll start recruiting enough people to at least have a, a fighting chance against the bad guys who seem to be recruiting them, you know, faster than we can. Yeah, I, um, I wish you the best of luck with that. That's a, it's a noble cause, Brian. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's something we can all do, right? It's yes, not we can. It's not, you know. Hey, I try, man. We... I talk about it all the time to, to young people. <laughs> Nobody listens. My kids never listen to me. I don't know what it is. Look, being a game designer <laughs> has much higher cachet value, right? <clears throat> right. Being a music producer, eh, it's okay. Playing guitar, that has a higher cachet value, right? <laughs> well, you know, so, it's, it's like, it's like it's every a, kid who plays football in high school is not going to go pro. I, that's I, right. I, 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 I break the news it. to everybody. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, you got to turn back the clock to when you were 15, 16 years old. Was there anything that you believed that you could not do? Oh, hey, don't don't even get me started. I was programming mainframes with punch cards in high school, man. I, this whole <laughs> cybersecurity thing didn't exist when I was in high school. Hey, man. I, <laughs> the, the old uh, green screens. I yeah, those. the good old days. Yeah, hub and spoke. That. Yep. That's right, man. We, that was cloud computing. It was. And now we're back. It, we went to distribute it and we came back. So I guess what's old is new again. That exactly. adage still holds true. Well, hey, Brian, thank you so much. Uh, we yeah. appreciate your generous time. 
and uh, look forward to having you back again some point. Don't be a stranger here. Thanks, Manoj. Absolutely. I'd, I'd be super excited to do another show anytime. Thank you, Brian. Take care.